Welcome to episode 246 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, and I'm delighted to be joined here by a longtime listener, first-time guest, overdue guest, really, I think, Louisa Thomas. I am so excited to be here. I am a very long-time listener and long-time admirer, so bucket list for me. <laughs> bucket list for us, too. We're very excited. Glad we, we see each other a fair amount. It's sort of like, I remember, and you said to me a couple years ago, like, why? Almost like, being like, <laughs> why am I not on NCR? And I had no answer, and I you're one of those people who I didn't think would ever like stoop to our level, <laughs> pretty much. But now that you are here, I am delighted to have you here. And we're going to do a pretty mailbaggy centric type show with you here. We got a bunch of listener questions on Twitter, on email, on our Patreon, and we'll go through these. But first, I just want to start, I guess, with how you got into tennis a bit and what your tennis sort of writing arc has been leading all the way up to. We can skip speed ahead to this version of the most recent story you did, which I think was on Kim Kleister's most recent tennis centered article you did for The New Yorker. Short version of your of how you how you got here. A short version is that I was a pretty mediocre high school tennis player, but absolutely loved it and stopped playing pretty much when I got to college and a little bit after and then picked up a racket again a few years after college and started playing um, with a friend of mine. And I just loved it. And it was like the greatest procrastination thing ever. I had actually had a book coming out and I was like filled with anxiety. And so I dealt with this by playing tennis for like, it took like four hours out of my day, oh, wow. you know, like several times because we would, I would go to Brooklyn, you know, it was like an hour oh, each yeah. way on if the you're subway. you're playing in New York, that's an, yeah, that's an ordeal. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, I was avoiding work and everything else. And out of that, I decided, or I was asked to write um, for the Paris Review blog about US Open that year. And I had so much fun doing it. And it was actually a really kind of a revelation for me. I really felt in some ways that I found a kind of voice that I hadn't really been able to Yes, it was it was it was both new and felt so much like me. Mm. And there was something about tennis and something about sports in particular. I'm sorry, something about sports in general, but tennis in particular that really kind of was your first time doing sports. too. Yeah, it was my first time doing sports. So tennis is really kind of my like my origin story. I'd I'd worked at the Washington Post sports section actually in high school, but that was a both a long time before and I wasn't, you know, a writer in the same way. So this was really kind of, and it felt experimental. It felt fresh. It felt new. It felt, it was none of those things really, but it <laughs> felt like I was doing something that no one else was doing. And that this was like me, you know, that this was something that I, I sort of was bringing into the world. And, um, it was really exciting. And if, and it was in the sense that it, like, it was my voice. After I did that, I did a little bit more for them. And then this Grantland, this sports website owned by ESPN, started by Bill Simmons, started up right before Wimbledon, actually. And they asked me to do a couple of stories. And that became kind of, I became a contributor, really just writing about tennis at first. And then I started writing about other sports. And then I started working for them full time and became an editor there. And then by the end, I was like doing all sports, not all sports, but many sports. Tennis was still kind of my... My true love, unless you're going to cap cross country skiing. But um. <laughs> so, am I right that your first tournament was the was the U.S. Open where Kleisters won? That's right. So that, that, yeah. that, that's good. That's good. That's well ahead into the into the future. So since then, yeah, you work right for the New York, New Yorker now. Seeing Kim Kleisters come back, what did you think? I, I think pretty much everyone who I talked to who watched it was super impressed by her ball striking, oh, and which is like even though she lost the match 
and was almost lost it badly. I mean, she was down 6-2, I think, 3-0 or 4-0 in the second set, fought back to have a tiebreak. So in some ways, you could be like, this wasn't that close, but she was playing Muguruza, who just made Australian Open final, had really nothing to lose in this match, and played really well, and just had a lot of a lot of things that made people go, whoa, and made people realize why she was a special player for so long, I think. I mean, I actually think even from the start of the match, it's one of those matches where the scoreline wasn't necessarily reflective of what was going on in the individual yeah. games. She was sort of competitive in a lot of games that she was losing. And she obviously has big weaknesses in her game. She's not as in shape as she probably wants to be. Her serve was kind of a disaster at times. But um, yeah, her ball striking was just thrilling. I mean, it was so pure. It was so... I mean, I like completely fell in love with her and fell in love with the sport all over again. And wow. it actually, I mean, even her announcement had summoned a lot of, of these kind of, uh, had made me think about my own kind of start in tennis writing and sports writing in general. And it became even more intense while I was watching her. And I was just, I was just happy in a way that was really uncomplicated and which was really interesting too, because I actually had a lot of complicated feelings about her coming back. And it was just so, it was like such a pleasure just to watch her and just to, see someone kind of seize the moment in some sort of like yeah. really kind of yeah uncomplicated way <laughs> so what are your what are your complicated feelings about her coming back then i mean i, I generally think that coming back uh, let me say this my complicated feelings aren't really about her coming back i mean she should do whatever she wants to do and this is clearly what she wants to be doing and that's like good on her you know my complicated feelings are only insofar as like you know i'm also trying to negotiate my own kind of ambition versus raising a small child and how mm -hmm. and the expectations that are being placed upon me you know and from various sides and trying to figure out well, what is it that i really want to be doing and how do i want to be prioritizing my life and and in some ways, one of the things I find really kind of inspiring about her is that she's actually, her story is more complicated than a normal kind of like, in some ways, a Serena Williams story where she knew she was going to want to come back and it was just about making that work in a way that worked for her. I mean, she she left the game, she came back, she left the game again, she came back. And I find the idea that you can have, you can sort of take a long view of your career, even in a career that is necessarily short, like sports, the idea that you can sort of view it as a kind of multi-dimensional thing where you can have different ambitions at different times and have different ways of judging success and have different kind of approaches to be to be really inspiring but also hard you know no. i mean because that's not how we normally talk about success or how is it how is it philosopher thing on clusters i think we'll get one question about her but this is my, my last question on her how has it influenced you being a relatively new mom in this sort of era of women's tennis where motherhood has been a big sort of a running storyline from Azarenka to Serena to Kleisters now. Like, what, what is, how, how is that, because you've written about all three of those women, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. in this time. What has that been like, sort of having your own personal life? I don't know if it informs how you, how you see these stories and see the narratives around these stories. For better or worse, my personal life always informs whatever I'm writing about, but I'm also not a person who's injecting my life story into, I mean, I did a little bit in the Kleisters piece, but I don't usually do that. And I have a little bit writing about Serena, but usually I try and step back from that. But certainly there's always like an undercurrent. There's a, a kind of, I used to think of it as a, a secret story. <laughs> there's something, there's sort of like some, um, you know, wellspring of feeling or some motivation that I have to bring into a story. Otherwise, it's just, a, it's not mine. You know, it's, it doesn't, that thing I was talking about, my voice, like I need to be tapping into whatever that is to, to get that voice. Um, and for 
some of these stories about mothers, obviously it is a little bit closer to what I've been going through, but it's also, again, more complicated because I think we have a, a, ti- a tendency to generalize <laughs> a lot when we're, especially when we're talking about something like motherhood when it's such a particular and unique experience. I mean, at least to prove my point, I was supposed to say, at least in my experience, it's been particular and unique. And, yeah. you know, but of course, it's one of these things that it's on the one hand, like, it's obviously not universal, but it's, it's something, you know, millions and millions and millions of people go yeah. through, like trying to figure out how to balance these different things. And not just how to balance them, but how to, um, you know, embrace them in different ways. But at the same time, like, what Serena wants is different than what Kleister's wants. And that's different than what Azarenka wants. And how do you do sort of justice to those stories without kind of flattening them or distorting them or, you know, assuming one thing for one and a different thing for another. And I think can be really challenging, but that's also part of the important thing about being a writer in some ways is sort of realizing the variety of human experience. And, yeah. yeah. For sure. Very nicely put. We got our first question I'll get to here from Fabian Giraneta asks, which player, which retired player would you like to see make a Kleisters-esque return? And I guess Kleisters-esque will sort of define as, I guess, someone who's like a Hall of Fame caliber type player, or at least a slam champ, coming back after a while off. And the thing is, we haven't had that many players retire lately in the sport. People are hanging on forever and ever, so there's not a huge bench of people to choose from right. compared Hall to most who time. Right, could come back right. like this, yeah. Um, I don't know who who who's your who does your thought go to first? I mean, we were talking a little bit before um, we started recording about you know Andy Roddick is someone that you know you can imagine pushing a very good player who's maybe a little bit volatile you know to a close match these days, but or Lena, but it's Lena is someone who I again like. This is every person is very has their own kind of unique path. I, I, I don't really, get the sense either of them want to exactly. Come back. Yeah. I don't really. I wouldn't really want them to come back because they seem like to be doing what they want to be doing, and so like why. Why put them in a, in a different situation? I also think that one thing I really actually do wish is that I don't, and watching Kleister's really kind of drove this home. Like, I actually really don't have a sense of how this era matches up with the era that Kleister's Early was. In. Yeah, exactly. Kind of, yeah. I don't really have a sense of like, are they hitting the ball that much harder? Like with that much more spin or, you know, is there, is there more variety now? You know, is there more depth? Like, I assume certain things, but, you know, watching her hit the ball like that, I was like, I haven't seen this, you know, in so long. And it's like, I would really like to sort of like time transplant, you know, Justine Nana into the, the, in her prime into the current game. I wish I could watch like Serena today play herself, you know, or, or Venus. I would love to see, you know, and and so there's this sort of um, way in which like, I find it not very helpful often to compare different eras, but Kleister's comeback actually did make me think like, oh, it'd be really fun to sort of be able to watch these players play each other. It's interesting because everyone was talking about Kleister's ball striking as being the sort of standout of this match, which is not something that she was really mainly known for when she was playing. I mean, her main strength that people, at least her flashiest part of her game was her movement, the defense, counterpunching more right. stuff, the sort of splits, forehand slide thing she did. So famously, and the question then for me was like, was everyone just hitting the ball better back then so that this didn't stand out from Kleister's? But or, this is also, I, I mean, you could also flip that. You could say everybody's moving so much better mm. now that the movement doesn't stand. I mean, obviously she's moving amazingly for someone who's been away from the game that long and has their kids and all that stuff. But, you know, when you see her do some of these kind of defensive slides or even on tape, when you see her, you know, slide into the splits, it's amazing. But I've seen Serena do that. I've seen... You know, Djokovic does that like 20 times yeah. a game. I mean, it's just not even like someone like Simona Halep is a mover. And a. it doesn't that part of the game seems like that is something that has, um, you know, infiltrated the rest of the game and people are training for it in a different way, practicing. 
Um, so that made her unique then. Now maybe her ball striking seems a little bit different. So it's a little bit like maybe the game is elevated and that's why that kind of thing doesn't stand up. Or maybe, you know, the way the players are hitting is not as, you know, special. And yeah. so that's why that stands up. I, I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm like, oh, yeah. it'd be fun. No, that's something <laughs> I'm curious about too and how much the new technology with racket strings and stuff makes players not emphasize the sort of clean hitting that Kleisters was doing that match or, or what, I'm not really sure. But yeah, so and tr- the other person who I would like to see have not necessarily a, and I'm going to actually try to get her on the show, I'll, I'll reach out to her because I've been missing her desperately, is Yelena Yankovic. Oh, yeah. Who just sort of faded away without ever really formally retiring and just sort of no one's heard from her in a while. I would like for her to have some sort of glorious send-off of some kind befitting her regal reign. You know, if you follow me that much you know that i'm like a practice court junkie like you'll generally find me up at some point during a slam like hanging out by the especially early on hanging out by the practice courts and one of my favorite practice sessions ever was i was like just watching um you yankovic in cincinnati hit shot after shot from like a full it's not not a squat it wasn't it was a lunge mm. like a just a proper lunge position. And she was just like hanging out in the lunge, hitting forehands. It was so weird. I mean, it was such like a, it was, of course, you know, it's the shot that she hits, but like, she was just like hanging out in the most casual way. <laughs> no, she was fun. So I, yeah, I just hope wherever she is, she gets sort of a, you know, just a, a moment to have her be focused on and celebrated. Not unlike, obviously, Wozniacki never really left the tour for any length right. of time, but what Caroline got in, uh, in Australia. All right, next question we have here. Uh, we, Bridget Robinson about how you got into tennis. We kind of covered that. Nick McCarville, fellow journalist, asked, would love to know how Louisa makes tennis pitches at a publication like The New Yorker. Always curious about what those outside the sport, i.e. your editors there, are interested in and what they think will resonate. So how, how does that work for you? How does Because obviously, Courtney and I work mostly, almost entirely within under a tennis sort of subsection in our writing, but you write for a much more general audience largely. So how do you... How is it easy to convince them that tennis is a good general interest topic? Is it tough? Is it, it very? How does that work? Um, I think my editor would be perfectly happy if I wrote less about tennis and more about football or basketball or whatever. But um, obviously, I love tennis, and that's you know something that they know and appreciate. And I'm I'm always going to be pushing to write about tennis. So um, the only stories I know I'm going to be doing is I know I'm going to be writing off one of the Slam finals. And there's another person who writes about tennis for The New Yorker, Terry Maserati, who's a friend of mine. And so we always kind of put our heads together and pick which final we want to be writing off of. So that's the only tennis story. So I know I'm going to be doing those four stories a year, basically. And then after that, it's just a question of how the calendar lines up with other things going on. And sometimes it can be hard. I mean, I I wanted to be writing a lot more about tennis and you know during the Australian Open, but that's a time where, you know, the Super Bowl is about to happen and Kobe Bryant died and I wrote about that. And, you know, that's I was planning on doing a tennis story and said that's where my attention yeah. had to go. So there are certain kind of challenges. Um, tennis is, I think, a, a good sport for the New Yorkers audience. Um, but tennis is by no means the number one sport in America or the number two or the number three. You have to go pretty far down the list, unfortunately. I find tennis to be a a really appealing sport to write about because for all sorts of kind of structural reasons, for one, I mean, there's sort of center stage matches. There's tournaments that have their own kind of narratives to them. You can see the players' faces. It's a sport in which in which psychology actually really does have a big impact, yeah. um, in which there are things like momentum. 
which is like some in like football, it's not, it's kind of a, there are arguments about this, but it's not the same thing. And there are these personalities that sort of play out on the court. So I find it really fun to write about because you're writing about human beings in this kind of very visceral way. And, yeah. and other sports have that to some extent, but um, tennis is really kind of unique in your ability to access some of these stories. Also, there are, uh, there's such a variety. There's international stories, there are women, there are, you know, kind of questions about gender and race and tradition yeah. and all these things. So it's a really kind of rich field. And it's not, and it's usually not too hard to convince my editor that, especially during a slam, you know, we want to be doing these things. Yeah, not every tennis story wants to do gets approved, for sure. But it's usually pretty easy to make it the case that, you know, there's an interesting story. And also I, I write often enough that, you know, it's not like if I'm not writing about, t- I write it often enough that, you know, it's usually, I can find a space in yeah. the, in the schedule for. You, you pay your dues in other sports to justify the tennis coverage for sure. There is definitely like, I write about Roger Federer probably more than I would if I were writing for, you know, a more tennis oriented. That goes for audience. everybody in tennis, yeah. I think. Like, I do feel like, at the end of the day, I probably, if I'm writing, you know, three or four stories during a slam, probably at least one of them, and not just because they're usually in the final, at least one of them is on one of the, the kind of major players, you know, that everybody knows. And and there that can be, like, tiring. And also sometimes I worry that I'm just repeating myself. But it's also, like, that's the reality of, of tennis in the world these days. Like, you kind of have to pay your dues with that, too, you know? So yeah. apologies for people who are tired about of my writing about <laughs> the same people over and over. No, we have questions. People ask questions about Roger later that we'll get to. But my, my question, um, when you talk about tennis not being number one, number two, number three sport, which I completely agree with, if actually to put a number on it, that'd be a different debate. It's probably somewhere around six or seven generously. Mm-hmm. But Courtney and I were having this discussion. What, and this is, feel free to not answer this question if you don't feel ready to, but what percentage of American U.S. citizens could currently name an active American men's tennis player. Oh man, I mean, I think Isner has a little bit of a little bit has caught on a little bit because he's such a guy. He's such an American guy. I think that he's been around a while. He's, he's been, been the guy a, for a exactly. while. Whatever the he guy means. In American and he has also now. like such a, a unique skill. And pe- you know, Americans like respond to big serves. So I think that probably a lot of people know who he is. I can't put a per- percentage on it, but I would say that. He, if you stop someone on the street, like a fairly high number of people, they might not be able to name him, but they would, if you told him, if you told them his name, they would know who he is. I'd be very surprised if the number, just the name an American men's tennis player was like above 20%. Yeah. Out, if you stop them out of the blue. Yeah. If you said, do you know who John Isner is? They might be able to say American tennis player. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a rough time. I mean, it's a well-documented rough time for American men's tennis. And, you know, there are good reasons for that. Like it's not... It doesn't actually surprise me. It also doesn't worry me in the same way no. that it worries other people. So it only takes one. You know, it's just like we just need to get a good immigrant, really. <laughs> there you go. This is certainly working. And certainly you see the women's side. Exactly. I mean, the, with Kenan winning the Australian Open with Anisimova being another. Yeah, there's a lot of immigrant immigrant power in the States now and around the world. Too. I mean, Andrescu, Osaka. I mean, lots of different immigrant stories in tennis, yeah. which are pretty cool. Uh, next question is from Gemma, who asks... Who is your favorite person, player or not, within tennis that you've covered? And what makes for a good profile? And this is a more general writer question. Is it something that you can know beforehand that you've got a good article coming um, from an interview? Is it something you can create or direct in a way? And how do you deal with 
interviews that haven't gone as you hoped or planned? Those are separate. Those are separate questions. Okay. So the first um, question is uh, favorite tennis person. Favorite to tennis cover. person. I, I'm sort of on the record with this already, but Simona Halep. Yeah, is I knew that was coming. Someone that I've, you know, has a special place in my heart, and so I have to always be a little bit careful about writing about her. Even though I'm not, I definitely am not someone who like can't write about her. I like her too much. And, like I know I love writing about her. Um, in fact, one of the reasons I I have a special place in my heart for her is I love writing about her. I mean, I just think that she is all the things I was talking about first uh, earlier about you know the psychological aspects of the game and the kind of aesthetic qualities and the narrative kind of drama that plays out both in the course of a single match or even the single point and also over the course of her career like it's all there and it's always all been there and I just I did profile her last year and I found that to be a really like rewarding experience it's always a danger right you know because um but she really I felt opened up in a way that um I wasn't sure she would, but... And you wrote about her for Grantland back in the day, too, I wrote right? about her for Grantland. I wrote, I wrote about her from Grantland really early, um, yeah. and I think that that has helped, you know, because I've been writing about her the whole time. And can I just, can I just <laughs> say, for because you won't say this yourself, the love you have for Hal is completely mutual, because I remember that, didn't she, like, ask for a photo with you after your she interview? She did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Which I've never had an athlete do, I, I, It's pretty. It was a, a special moment in my life. And also, she took it with... She had it taken with her phone, which... And then they, like texted to me so i'm sure that she's like deleted this but like it's like wild to me that i'm sure it's her, i'm sure it's her lock screen i'm sure um but it was fun but yeah so and then what makes for a good profile like what kind of person do you um think? there are different kinds of people i mean and, and there are different kinds of great profiles i mean sometimes a profile is built on access interesting conversations like the one i had with her um sometimes you get nothing from an athlete and it's written from the context um, and it tells a kind of story around them instead of from within. And often you have to do that, honestly, because yeah. a lot of athletes, for whatever reason, um, for good reasons and, you know, reasons having to do with personality and reasons having to do with circumstance and reasons having to do with language barriers or whatever, you don't always get from them. Also, our athletes, and I, this is like one of my, the big themes of my life is that athletes are not always the best interpreters of their own experience. Right. I mean, in fact, people aren't the best interpreters of their own experience, but that's especially true of athletes. And so sometimes I've actually found that um, interviews are actively unhelpful. I found that like, if you have a quote, you sort of feel like you should use it, <laughs> you know, when in fact, like you could actually maybe get at what they're trying to say in a much kind of richer and yeah. way if you haven't, if you don't have a quote. At the same time, it's definitely worth like listening to them and, and hearing what they have to say. And I always find, you know, I always try to look at press conference transcripts and all those things in addition to, you know, if I'm writing a profile, actually talking to them. I, I like the challenge sometimes of writing about people who aren't, you know, maybe the most kind of great talkers. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a story that Chloe Cooper, started to interject, Chloe Cooper Jones did a story, a profile thing for GQ on Dominic Team. Team which was great. And she did a great job of making the story kind of about how he doesn't say anything. Right. About how she was waiting for him to say more and then he didn't. And I think Dominic's actually changed a lot yeah. in the last several years. I think actually people have said that him dating Mladenovic probably helped his media profile up because he was speaking a lot of English with her, mm -hmm. as, which often happens when you get a, a romantic partner or coach on the tour who you're not having to speak English with. The player's press improves markedly. Mm -hmm. And players do have a team that's all in their native language often don't have the same sort of press engagement abilities. And also Motenovich and her personality and being a bit of a, um, use a, use a lazy word, diva, mm -hmm. you know, just sort of being very outspoken and, and very 
argumentative and a big personality, I think injected a little bit that into team too. And so team like sticks up for himself more now and is more confident, more outspoken. Mm-hmm. All that to say, I mean, and to your point, yeah, I, I, did, remember I did a story, not a tennis story once, but a story for the Times on Alex Ovechkin. And I went to the Caps practices and talked to them and I filed the story and then I got a note from my editor being like, there's not a single quote from Ovechkin in here. And I went back and I was like, oh, that's, that's where you're right. There's nothing. <laughs> yeah. from, and I listened to his quotes and they were all useless. Yeah. And he's not just like, he especially, it was kind of about how he's like an island unto himself, onto the team. He's not really a team player. This is before they won their cup and not that he's changed that much, but you know, that he was sort of this big personality and this outside thing. And it wasn't, and what he had to say, we finally put a quote in there just early in the story. So you would have heard from him. Yeah, I mean, he was not interesting on himself, but his teammates who were around him all the time were interesting on him. And I think a lot of stories can work. I also that think way. that there's a, something that a lot of people, of course, don't realize is that um, sometimes the experience of talking to someone and then reading a transcript. I mean, I wrote about Ojer Ali Asim, and he's this person who's like the loveliest, most charismatic person when you're in a conversation with him. You feel like you're really engaged and, you know, that he's actually thoughtful and that what he's saying is very authentic and genuine. and but on the page, like, it's very, it, it can seem very, um, maybe unoriginal is kind of the right word because, it, because a lot of stuff is sort of unorig- unoriginal, you know, in the sense that, like, he's respectful of the past and also hopeful of the future and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, and so what comes across on the page isn't necessarily your experience of talking to them in person. And that bridging that gap or sort of trying to recreate the situation can be really, difficult and you know sometimes you succeed and sometimes you don't i one sidebar question interesting for me because you i think we've talked about this before about offline if you don't want to answer this feel free not to but you are married to a former mm-hmm. athlete and i'm curious how that experience and he was an active athlete mm-hmm. in the nfl when you first met and we're living together already what what is that how has that informed your understanding of athletes oh yeah i mean again one uh, it's made me realize athletes really do think differently <laughs> than the rest of us sometimes. I mean, his ability to um, rise to the occasion in competitive situations is astonishing. I mean, when we first started dating, we played a lot of pool. There was a pool table in our apartment, our apartment building. And I was definitely like, quote unquote, better at him at pool. And he always beat me hmm. because when it came down to the last ball, like I would choke and he would just start sinking everything. And I mean, it was just, it became this kind of like joke. Not every athlete is like that, for sure. But there are people who can just do that. I mean, he's someone who just, if you put, if you raise the stakes, he's going to perform better. And so that was really interesting for me to like, I sort of knew that, you know, intellectually, but it's been interesting for me to like witness that in practice, even on kind of mundane things. Um, But also I would say that, yeah, I mean, he's, there are different kind of, athletes and he's someone who really actually does like only worry worry about what he can control like that's not me you know like i am someone who is full of regret and second guessing and you know i i worry you know i like lay in bed and he just he's like if i can control it i worry about it and if i can i don't if i make a decision i don't question until i have information that you know makes me doubt it you know i mean and that's a kind of very um helpful quality if you're uh an athlete and it's sort of these are kind of the unusual psychological things that you sort of you sort of know about you know but when you really kind of see them you think oh yeah this is actually this stuff really does make a difference the overthinking stuff which we talk about and people talk about that a lot in tennis about being a knock against players people use it for like petkovic and things like that people who are more 
at least openly like thoughtful, curious right. players and how it might not actually serve them as competitive athletes. Yeah, I mean, and it goes back and forth because certainly we all know someone like Roger Federer is like probably thinking on the court. Like it's not like there's right. one model for how to do it. But yeah, I mean, and, and it is sort of one of these things where like you have to remember that just something because something is is kind of a cliche doesn't mean it's not true or real or important. Like, and that is also helpful for me as a writer because you sort of have to remember that you can be telling the same story over and over again, but you have to, it's, you have to be true to the ways in which it's original. You yeah. know? So you did a story during the Australian open about the bushfires, which were a looming threat. People thought before the tournament didn't want to being that much of a factor at all. Once the main draw play started, but it was a big talking point. I think pretty fairly uh, before the tournament started, obviously there was a big, ecological crisis in australia at the time and we got and there was bad air quality during right. qualifying and not great in sydney for atp cup and we got a question uh from aria marsden one of our listeners who asked and i'll sort of summarize this but recent events australian bushfires and coronavirus and we wonder if tennis is equipped to handle sudden crises for example i hope the coronavirus issue goes away by year's end but what would wta have done if this was september uh, when the wta tours in asia uh and specifically china just cancel everything? Are there procedures in place to stage tournaments in case of a drastic emergency? And there's more to the question, but basically, she says, tennis I got lucky this year with the fires, which I agree with. As the world changes around with coronavirus, was sort of an unseen pandemic or un- unexpected pandemic, but pandemics are never really expected per se. And climate change and stuff. Do you think tennis, and you wrote a great piece for Racket about indoor tennis or about the purity of outdoor versus indoor right. tennis, which I really loved, and about tennis's embrace or rejection of the elements and you know, i'm just curious what you think like tennis and how flexible it is because i already i will say already because wuhan right was the epicenter of the right, outbreak of, of the coronavirus which is a city that's why i mean i know i feel like i know wuhan in a way you know yeah i was from there and then obviously they put a big tournament there and i don't think most people who are not tennis followers in the u.s or chinese honestly yeah. or been to china know what wuhan where where it is or what it is or that it exists so for it being synonymous with tennis for me I already messaged them. They say they're monitoring the situation. They don't know. But that's a big tournament. That's like a master's level tournament for the women. And they have their year-end championships in Shenzhen pretty close to there. They have the Beijing, which is another master's type level tournament for them. And men have Shanghai. What? Yeah. Do you think that tennis is... Do you trust them to handle these things well? Let's put it that way. Um, Well, I guess the first answer, the first question, I don't know what their contingency plans are. I certainly assume that they are very quickly and urgently um, creating contingency plans. Um, I mean, they have to be. I mean, I think one of the reasons I wanted to write about the bushfires was, you know, there were, there were, that story was kind of playing along two tracks. One was like the immediate future. Like, what does this mean for this Australian Open? And there was a, probably a lot of overreaction, you know, sensationalization about like, oh, they should just cancel the Australian yeah. Open or whatever. And that was like no. absurd. Yeah. But it, at the same time, this is going to happen again in one form or another. And, you know, in Australia, certainly where there are the environment is so extreme, but also, you know, in, in other places around the world, and it's becoming more and more clear that, you know, places need to have real kind of to be ready for the way the, the you, world and environment is changing. You yourself got hit by a hurricane in 2011. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and what happens in Miami, you know, if, I mean, it's not hurricane season, but like, in 20 years, like the, the Miami coastline is going to be different probably. And, or certainly in 40 years. I mean, so these are kind of things. And, and the thing is you might think like, well, why do we care about what's happening in 20 years? Like who can see that far ahead? But you know, 20 years ago it was 2000. It was like, it'd be Serena Williams. Was still playing. Exactly. <laughs> it's not like it was a different kind of lifetime. And 
Um, and these things take a lot of time to put into effect, like real contingency plans that involve like more kind of robust changes, like it takes a while. You have to actually start years in advance really thinking about this. So I, I'm hoping that places like the Australian Open or all the tournaments, you know, that have been affected um, by the bushfires, I mean, because it's not just Australian Open, obviously it was really affecting, you know, a lot of these like lead up tournaments pretty much every place because, you know, who knows where an epidemic is going to yeah. affect. So yeah, contingency plans are something I, I hope are be- being taken more seriously. And I hope that, you know, in the future when you have to email a you know, a big tournament, say like what happens when, you know, if this were happening at a different time of the calendar, they're going to actually have an answer yeah. for you. I do have enough faith in people that they're working on that now. I, I mean, do I trust them? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you would know this better than I, because you have more kind of experience interacting with a lot of tournament organizers than I do. So I don't feel equipped to answer that question, but I do. It's my, certainly my hope because this is like a real thing. Yeah. No, and I, for the coronavirus specifically, no one has any idea what if and when it's going to ebb. Right. And, you know, it could be completely off the map or not a factor by May or hopefully March or wherever we're currently in February. It's unpredictable also the spread. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, this is something I live in Boston and the Boston Marathon right now is like dealing with how do we deal with, you know, large numbers of people descending on us from around the world who are going to be packed into close quarters and, you know, and probably... They're just going to continue monitoring the situation. Then Boston Marathon will be run and everything will go well. And that's like absolutely the outcome that we want, you know. Um, So probably everything's going to be fine. But there is that chance that everything's not. And then what do you do? So, yeah, that is the hope that everybody is sort of preparing for this. And not just in a short-sighted way, but in a kind of with a long, long view. And, you know, there have been other tournaments and stuff. I mean, like, I don't think got enough attention last year, honestly, the WTA tournament in Hong Kong was canceled because of the Hong Kong protests and and things. And that also, I think the Hong Kong protests almost certainly, I talked about this on the show with Lindsay Gibbs when she was on, but the Hong Kong protests almost certainly had a negative impact on the Shenzhen champs attendance, which is a very nearby city. And they were probably banking a lot of Hong Kong attendance for that event, which just didn't happen. And, you know, there's other world events that have happened dating back in history further than that. There used to be big tournaments. The South African Open was a big tournament at one point. They got sort of derailed by objections to apartheid. And, you know, tennis has been shaped by, as a world sport, it's been shaped by world history for a very long time. I mean, this is one of the both amazing and troubling things about sport is that it offers an escape from the world's problems. But at the same time, it's very much shaped by, as you say, like, you know, geopolitics and whatever else is happening in our in our culture and our society and our environment. So we can't, on the one hand, it would be, we need these places to be like refuge. That's a human thing. On the other hand, like we can't close our eyes to the ways in which, you know, they're shaped by them. Now I'm curious to start sidebar again into what do you think, this has always been a big topic since you've written for the, in your time writing about sports, but the whole stick to sports oh, yeah. debate vis-a-vis just tennis. Obviously, like other sports, LeBron and other NBA leaders have been super outspoken. Colin Kaepernick, obviously, very famously. Tennis has been markedly very quiet on this front. And even when faced with obvious moments, whether it's market court, whether it's tennis sangren, whether it's, I don't know, other things. I mean, there's just been like no one, almost no tennis player ever taking an opportunity. Almost no almost current. No current. Yeah. And also like player with a platform. Occasionally, Nicole Gibbs will say something occasionally. Right. Andy Murray. Andy Murray, right. But right. even his, like, usually just in response to things. Right. And as much as he has been outspoken, his takes are also, when you look at them actually objectively, and I'm not trying right. to knock him, but they're <laughs> relatively conservative, like, 
when you think about them, like, yes, women can coach men. Right. Like, that's seen as a radical stance in sports, which I understand right. the context of it. But in outside of sports, and people are like kind of shrug at yeah. it. But why, why do you think tennis has been so quiet? And is, is that a, a problem for the sport? Is it an asset for the sport that tennis players have been so actively non-political? Despite all of the gender and race issues, right. which you mentioned earlier, making it an interesting social fabric. I think there are a couple of things going on. One is that I think we went through, just have gone through a pretty like a, you know, that, that politics are obviously like taking over sports in certain ways, but it's been a pretty apolitical time <laughs> in late capitalism. I mean, maybe this generation coming up will kind of shape that, change that because they seem to be a little bit more kind of Coca-Golf to, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Eager to mobilize. But I think one, tennis is a really global sport. And so one thing is that I always have to be careful with myself because I was kind of assumed that like whatever's going on in America is what matters to tennis, you know, and that's not true. And also that people coming out of different countries just have different like values, honestly. And um, it's very hard to expect them to respond in the same way that they would if they were American, which is not to say that I think that they shouldn't, you know, it's just that they're shaped by different kind of worldview and they're engaged with different kind of questions. Um, I think a lot of players from other countries don't have the same sort of like view of like racial politics and, you know, culture that probably Americans do, for mm. instance, just to throw one out there or gender yeah. too, you know? Um, and so part of it, I think it's, it's like a, quite a global game. Part of it, I think there has been a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of cowardice, you know, and maybe to use a strong word, but I don't think anyone is obligated to stand up, but there is a kind of like a noticeable silence. Yeah. Um, a big missed opportunity, a big missed opportunity for sure. It's scary. I mean, people have worry about sponsorships. They worry about backlash from, you know, fans. They worry about, you know, saying something that they don't mean precisely and it being taken out of context. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm totally sympathetic with yeah. all of them. I mean, I'm not someone who, like, really – I have really strong beliefs. And I don't take to Twitter and air them all the time. I have – I don't have a platform like a celebrity athlete, but, you know – you could say that I should be doing a lot more and, you know, I try and do what I can sort of in the ways I shape my writing or whatever, but it's not, I'm not an, you know, I'm not, I'm not an activist and, and you could make the same argument, you know, I guess about me. Um, mm. And I think that would be valid. Um, but it, I also think, you know, I, I think it's hard, but I also think that there are also a lot of people follow the example set by Federer and Nadal and, you know, to some extent, Djokovic, and sort of the way they carry themselves in this kind of very, like, polite, apolitical yeah. way. And that has sort of modeled, it, that has sort of, like, set the standard and the model that yeah. many people follow. And and even Serena is obviously, like, very outspoken about certain things. She picks her spots. She definitely picks yeah. her spots. And, you know, and she's a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, they're supposed to be not involved in politics. So she also has other reasons for not engaging in this, in the way that, you know, you might expect her to. Yeah. So, and then, but, you know, if she... If she were kind of more generally asked, but maybe more women would be, or, or you know, if someone else were, you know, someone who's well respected within the women's game as well. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a really kind of important question, I think. Um, and I think that the test comes when someone is outspoken. You know, how are they received? How are they amplified or quieted? Yeah. And um, and I think it does for better or worse. Like the top players, the ones that. That's those are the test cases. As much as I admire yeah. Nicole Gibbs, you know, I think that he had some infinite goodwill in the men's locker room, but I don't think it helped 
Andy, I don't think it made Andy Murray more popular that he hired a woman. Let's put oh, it that for way, sure, yeah. In the room. I, I yeah. mean, I don't think that he got any benefit from that with among his direct peers and got some sort of mockery for it, actually. You know, and yeah, and, and I, I just thought it was really striking during the Australian Open how with the market court stuff, especially that's been going on for a few years now. Right, that elderly that, players. That, that it was these players <laughs> yeah, in their legends. 60s. Yeah. Mac never told us been banging this drum forever. Yeah. And it's obviously more personal to her. But I was really surprised. And I think I said this before on the show, impressed with McEnroe sort of standing up and putting himself out there as also just like fairly recklessly right. as someone who's like hired to do encore interviews for this yeah. tournament at the Australian Open. And especially on an issue that we think of as being the LGBT stuff, thinking of being a more youth-driven issue or a right. generationally younger issue. That he's out there sort of sticking up for it and that no active players of the of the 200 plus players, you know, more than that, younger than him, all the way down to juniors, nobody's doing anything. Yeah, I just thought it was really sort of interesting and striking. And, and I do think there is, I think players could do more. Like, I think if, I don't know, throw a random name out there, I'm just going to pick a first name that comes to my mind. Like, if Polona Herzog wanted to walk out on Mark Court Arena wearing like a rainbow headband. For her, if she was scheduled on Margaret Court for her right. first round match against whoever, like it would make news, probably almost certainly, right. and it wouldn't cost her. I can't imagine, like I don't know who her sponsor is. Uh, Hydrogen is her clothing sponsor. Like they're not going to dump her for that, right? right. And like I mean, and like, so I think the sort of sponsor thing is a pretty antiquated, almost like Billie Jean King era right. view of these things. Uh, Although yeah. there are certain football players who would disagree yeah. oh and, it, <laughs> but, yeah. and on the opposite side i saw just i don't know if you saw this morning or maybe happened last night i was seeing tweets about this morning or yesterday last couple days uh the 1980 u.s men's hockey team mm-hmm. was having their 40th reunion of the miracle on ice and they went on stage at a keep america great rally with donald oh, wow. trump wearing keep america great hats or at least probably a dozen of them did right. and a lot of people were very upset by that right. that this team was being political but also that's they're being you know, political yeah. you can't only if you want if you want politics and sports you can't you can't expect to only draw a line the politics that you agree with in or sports. certainly some of the american men's yeah. players and there can be consequences on yeah, either side exactly. right yeah i know the american men for sure like john Isner's likes column on twitter yeah. it's a well-known yeah. place so i mean it's i mean it's a it's a complicated thing like you can't dictate people's views if you're going to welcome them I mean, you can have an open dialogue about what you think is right, you know, and that's the hope is that that's what you're doing is you're bringing a lot of these things to attention. Um, I mean, I sort of think like, you know, it's interesting to see like someone like Ash Barty, who you sort of assume that you know what she thinks, but is not, you know, using her press conferences to sort of use. And I mean, again, like this is, I, I do try to put myself into their positions and I'm someone who's like, I, I am, I, I use the word cowardice. Like I, this is something I feel sometimes like I, you know, I know that certain things should be said and like, I'm not always saying them. So it's not like I want to, it's not like I want to be clear. Like I I don't feel like I should be like, well, this is like obviously the thing to do and they're, it's so easy to do. And why don't they do it? Um, even when I think they should, you know, I think I know it's hard. So, um, and I, so I admire more the people who, who do it. But yeah, I mean, I also, you know, I do think that, um, you know, this is something we're, we should be talking about. So yeah, a couple big three related questions here. We have one from Keith Horton who asks, what is it specifically about Roger that New Yorkers particularly love, especially in Long Island, where he said he enjoys spending more time as he gets older? I guess by Long Island, he means Flushing Meadows. I, I, I don't I'm think sure I don't think Roger's out in the Hamptons yeah, or anything. Exactly. Maybe you're out in, I don't know, uh, 
Nassau or something. But no, but what is... I'm sure they do love him at the Hamptons. I'm <laughs> sure... Oh my, I guess... I'm sure they would love him at the Hamptons, Roger <laughs> Federer. But I guess I guess this goes to sort of a general Roger Federer. You talked about writing about him more yeah. than other players. But what is it... And, you know, and I try to make this clear to people when I'm at the sport, when, I, when I'm talking to people, like, the Federer fandom is next level within tennis. It's not the same as Serena fandom or Nadal fandom or certainly not Djokovic fandom or anybody else, Murray, anybody fandom. Honestly, Coco Golf is like getting up there in terms of her fan ardor, but yeah. like she's definitely top 10 at least now. What is it about? What makes Federer so special within tennis? And when, what has it been like observing the, the sort of, for lack of a better word, cult of Federer in tennis? Um, I definitely don't think that New York, New Yorkers have a monopoly on Federer no. fandom. I mean, the amazing thing about Federer is that he is, and I think this has actually really helped his career. Like he never, he plays on home court wherever he is. Like he has no away, you know? I mean, maybe if he did Davis Cup in Serbia, you yeah. know, then he played John Millman in Australia. Oh, which actually it was, is not yeah. even a thing anymore. Sorry. Yeah. I'm saying like what, what I'm saying is that he is the favorite everywhere he goes. And I do actually think that's a huge advantage. Um, and it's probably helped his success. There are ways in which he is, this, has this kind of like aura of, you know, authority and it's, it taps into a lot of things that people who watch tennis like, you know, it's a, it's regal. It's, you know, elegant. It's pleasant to watch. It's like seductive in this very weird way. I mean, I have this really strong kind of memory where I really, this sort of came home to me when I was watching him play the U S open a few years ago. Maybe it was this 2017 and he had sort of like a lazy squash shot. You know, he just didn't really get himself into position to like hit a proper forehand and I was just like, that is the most beautiful shot I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I just like, I just was like, wow, you know? Yeah. And then it like, I had to like check myself being like, you know, that was kind of lazy, you know? <laughs> but there is just the way he kind of like sweeps to the ball that is just transfixing. I mean, and I'm sorry, but he is just, he actually is really great to watch. So that's part of it. I, I don't know if I've told the story in the podcast before, but I got my parents tickets to Center Court Wimbledon two years ago, 2018. And they went to a day where both Serena and Federer were playing on Saturday. They've got very, all the whole situation, a lot of things like right. broke luckily for me. But my, it's especially interesting hearing from my mom, who doesn't follow tennis that much at all. I mean, only really follows it at all because her son works in tennis yeah. now. And seeing her, her experiencing like a Federer love fest and yeah. having like, Federer means nothing to her, right. essentially. She was telling me the, the woman next to her had this like long sermon she was giving about how much she loved Federer and how with Federer, you know, it is like the difference between subjective beauty and objective oh, beauty yeah. and how Federer is objective beauty. And, you know, how there's just like, oh, and, and my mom so was just like, like, wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not I, saying you're doing that at yeah, all, no, but, no, no, but, I mean, but I'm just saying like, that is the sort of like, that is, that's the vibe. That is and, the line. And, and that's the thing is like, I want to say is like, I don't like, I find it all kind of like gross, honestly. Like, I mean, it's annoying and it's overwhelming and it, it discounts a lot of other players. I'm just saying like, I'm vulnerable to it too. Is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's a thing. But at the same time, like, yeah, I mean, I think partly there's this kind of like hegemony of, of style that he kind of represents. So that's part of it. Part of it is he's just well known in a way. He's famous in a way that people kind of can immediately access. He's kind of, yeah, he's just has this like unimpeachable thing going on. And, um, and also he's, his career has been like long enough that even the people who kind of used to hate him, People who, like, used to just love Nadal and hate Federer, they probably are annoyed by how much people like Federer. But, like, 
I don't think people like hate him in the way that they might have at one point, you know? His, his, I've heard this from several people, people who were not, and I think I was just listening to the Body Serve podcast yesterday, and Jonathan on there was saying he started off as an Adolf fan who couldn't stand yeah. Federer, and that was the really more heated, more intense rivalry than it is now. Now it's kind of like very much like seniors tour yeah, rivalry, exactly. kind of just like, like almost like exhibition-y rivalry. Not that they're still playing for very real stakes, but, but they're still the stakes playing, are but also they're actually playing exhibitions together. Yeah. I mean, like it's yeah. not even like it's now and, they and Cor- have this kind of... Courtney, even if people who go back, and maybe she doesn't want me saying yeah. this, but I'll say it anyway, Courtney, if you go back to like 42, she was not a Federer fan at all. When Federer was the dominant, you know, really domineering presence on tour, you know, circa 08, 07, 08, like that. And now, like, as he's become more sympathetic and he's not winning everything all the time, he's more interesting, more sympathetic. Right, exactly. And also, you know, has become a dad and leaned in his dorkiness yeah, exactly. more. And just, so he like, does have a, a he's more, more, more likable, more sympathetic now, yeah. maybe. Yeah. He, he's both more likable and sympathetic. And also, like, he's someone who clearly is playing tennis because he likes it. And sometimes it can be really nice to watch someone do something you like. You know, yeah. that's part of it, I think. Yeah. Um, but I, part of it is just annoying um, still, you know. <laughs> the question from Tom Van Arsdale, who, to condense this a little bit, Courtney said on, I think, our post-Australian Open show that she thinks that the GOAT debate, has all, the discussion around it has always been about which of these big three finishes with the most Grand Slams. And it should, that if people rewrite that, they're just sort of, you know, rewriting history, essentially rewriting a previous contract that we agreed yeah. to. I'm not sure I agree with this take, but that's Courtney's take. Tom is asking for you, Louisa, to weigh in on... Where things stand in the goat rate in the goat chase, do you think Djokovic will end up with the most slams? And is that does that if he wins most slams of the three, does that make him the quote greatest of the of all time or of the three? And do you do you agree with Courtney's edict that fame, form, support, and love are secondary or irrelevant in a uh, greatest discussion? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna punt a little bit because I'm so anti ranking. Like yeah. I'm never uh, I don't like the goat debate for starters. <laughs> Um, because I don't think, like I said, I don't think it's really useful to compare eras. I also don't really think it's actually that useful to compare these three because the context in which they're doing it is so different. I do think Djokovic is going to get the most, and I think he probably should be considered the greatest of all time. If, you know, if only because of that and because of the competition, you know, that he's had to go through to, to get to that place, it makes it even more amazing. Yeah. He never had any clear runway to himself. Exactly. Whereas, you know, early on, Federer was a really kind of... A little bit of a head start. Yeah. Although Nadal, I feel like, showed up earlier yeah. people give it credit for in, in Federer's career. I mean, I like, mean, Federer won his first slam in 03 and Nadal won and was on the board in 05. Yeah. So no, I mean, not I, that much of a head yeah. start. I, I do think, like, I think these three, I mean, I think that the three are the greatest of all time. I mean, I think I really would like to sort of elevate them all together, partly because I don't think that you can really extricate their careers from each other. They're just kind of too tangled. So it doesn't really make sense to sort of isolate, you know, one and say like, oh, this person is the best. And so I'm like, well, this person wouldn't be the best without this person. You know, I mean, it's not really helpful. It's like, I I kind of get annoyed. I mean, I, I think Serena is her own, she's her own phenomenon, but like, Serena would not be Serena without Venus. Ask Serena that. She would say that, you know? And so it would be like telling Serena's story without mentioning Venus. Like, it's not helpful in some ways. So I do find it more important to look at the context necessarily than, like, just focus on who's best. Um, I also do think he's going to get the most. And I do think that when we talk about these things, I mean, I tend to think, like, I'm a writer, right? And I'm a certain kind of writer. I care about narrative, (laughs) you know? I don't think that, you like, it's the most interesting way to watch tennis is to like look at numbers and then look at who's at the top of a list. So I'm, that's not how I do things. I tell stories. And so I think that the stories that we tell about people and the stories that they tell about themselves 
really do matter. I And Djokovic obviously has a kind of very strong, like, narrative that's told about him again and again, which he's pushed back against yeah. recently in this kind of interesting way. And I find I find that part of it poignant and interesting and overplayed for sure at certain times and maybe underplayed in other ways. Um, yeah. But also part, like, that's all part of his story. Even his own kind of interaction with it is part of his story. So I don't think that's relevant. I also don't think it, it undercount, you know, it undermines, yeah. you know, his quote-unquote greatness. I think that his greatness is just like, it's both objective and subjective. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But I do think, I think that, to go back to a little bit to our my question about how many people could name an American men's right. tennis player from earlier, I think if you made it a past American men's question, I think in 2020 as we're recording this, I think a lot more people would name Agassi than would name Sampras. That's right, my guess. Of the, because of because Open, really. Well, because of Open and because he was just a bigger sort of more resounding yeah. personality. And Agassi won only, I think, eight slams. Right. And Sampras won 14. And so, but I do think that there is a case to be made that, like, Agassi was a more important or more impactful tennis player than Sampras, even if he was, by numbers, well behind Sampras spent less time at number one, but just because he sort of resonated and that's what, you know, if life is only just about, you know, if it's an entertainment business and in, in sports in some way and you're the one who left the mark and made people feel things. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I will say, I'm, so to use the framing this question, I don't agree with Courtney necessarily that like, but is that, is what I'm talking about greatest? I'm not sure if it's like greatest but, versus most important versus most impactful, most influential. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. depend on how you define great. I mean, I actually think so, like that's it. I'm like, oh, well, now that I hear that, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, the number actually matters here. Yeah. <laughs> San Francisco is, like, more important. But like um, McEnroe, I think, only won seven slams. Yeah, no, no, I mean, the the kind of impact that certain players have had doesn't necessarily line up with, like, how many slams they won. But that's why, again, like, I'm, like, I'm, I'm kind of out on the rankings game. Yeah. And this is also something I've tried to speak to before. Like, I think sometimes how you define success, it's, like, really important to think about how we're defining success and what we expect of people. And... Um, also because like so much of the stuff is like luck, you know, it's like, when are you born? Like what, I mean, so much, even within a game, like there are some matches that players should have lost and they go on and win the tournament and there are matches that they, you know, it, it's so easy to change the course of history, you know, sport tennis history, just on the basis of, you know, like a couple of millimeters. And yeah. so that's why I sometimes, you know, struggle to. Especially like Grand Slam count, like to bring up Yankovic again. Is Yankovic a worse player than Ost- another Yelena Ostapenko because she didn't win a Grand Slam? Like I would say, absolutely not. Like I think things like Ostapenko caught lightning in a bottle and kind of and he had a very easy draw up until the final, which right. you had to beat Halep. Yeah, and Yankovic was like a solid like number one in the world player in a in a pretty tough era, and mm-hmm. yeah, and so just like if history you know ranks Ostapenko above Yankovic, I wouldn't agree with that at all. But so yeah, I mean. It's a, it's a, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm pro story, so. Yeah, there you go. A couple more questions to get back to the writing side of things to wrap up. Uh, Cody Fitzpatrick, big fan of yours, I know, asks, when you sit down to write about tennis, what are you trying to accomplish? It's this question. Big question. He imagined something like explore the personality of a player through the lens of action on court and do it with precision and fluidity, or, or how would you I like, modify that definition. I like his definition. I'm going to go. It's much more elegant and interesting than any <laughs> definition I could come up with myself. Um, what is your goal when you write when you sit down to write a story about tennis? In it's going to sound really, really cheesy, but I've actually referred to it before. I'm trying to 
I'm like, what's the secret story? Like, why am I writing this piece? And sometimes, honestly, like every once in a while, sometimes like I'm writing this piece because I have a job and I have a deadline and it needs to be done in the next like now. And that's why I'm writing this piece. And that's not bad. Like when you have a job, sometimes you actually just have to do it. Like that's your job. And sometimes I'm writing it for like deeply, like when I was writing about Quaestors, I was like thinking about all these, you know, things that I've been thinking about for years. And there was a kind of like personal story behind whatever story I was telling. And those are stories I kind of like writing, you know, because I feel like I'm working through my own like life and feelings and thoughts. Um, but basically, I guess, yes, I'm, I really do want to tell a story about, per- I, I want to make people like feel something ultimately. And I want to do it in a way that feels honest and not like manipulative and cheesy. <laughs> Um, so, and yeah, I think I'm really, I'm like very vulnerable to the way that, that personality plays out through the game and the way that, you know, I, I read a lot into style, um, more than I should, but I do always think it's some of their tenets is like such a perfect contained, like self-contained microcosm of so many things. And yeah, I just sometimes like want to follow sort of the arcs of, arcs of it, the arcs of personality and the drama and the ball. And um, if I can sort of bring that, bring some like feeling and meaning into that, some ideas, then that's my goal. Do you have a favorite tennis story you've written? I have favorites. I love, I mean, there's, there are just times where I like, I just was writing and I felt the first time I wrote about Simona, like back in, you know, I don't know, winter 2014 or whatever. Like I, I was writing that and it felt right. You know, there are definitely times where I write about a match and I just like, I'm not even sure I can think of any like favorites, but I felt like, I, you know, I felt like I was inside the moment or inside the piece in a way. That's like why I do it. You know, it's like, I mean, it can be a little bit akin to maybe like being in the zone for a player. Like if you're just, you're like swinging and it just feels right. And yeah. you're just in the moment. You're not really kind of overthinking it. And writing can be like that. Yeah. Sometimes I actually go back and read certain pieces and I'm like, I don't remember having written them, but not in a bad way. Like I, in a good way, like, like an out of body. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. One question more about writing from a couple more on writing from Arun Dingdra, who asks, what do you think could be improved in tennis journalism currently? And I guess through this question, if you want to sort of plant yourself and where you think you stand in a sort of continuum or the ecosystem. Sure. Um, I guess I'm going to say that I'm, I feel like a little bit hesitant to answer this question because I'm not a tennis journalist. I'm not someone who's at, I'm um, not like Ben. I'm not like Courtney. I'm not at tournaments every week or weekend and week out. I'm not, I try to go to, you know, at least one slam a year, but I usually only go for a few days. Um, I've actually found that my, I like having a perspective on the outside a little bit. I think it might help me not get caught up in, the sort of day-to-day things that sort of start to seem very big when you're there. And I also find like, especially because I really like um, seeing their faces, it can actually be helpful for me to watch on TV instead of live. Although I like doing both. I think it's important to do both. Um, Certainly in the stadium. Exactly. Like I always found like I've been to us open finals and I've watched them on TV, you know, for writing purposes, I've had a much time easier time writing, watching the us open final on TV because the press seats in Ash at my level, at least you're like just a million miles from the players and I can't see what's on their faces. And it's just not helpful to me to not be able to see a replay and not be able to see their faces. I'm not really getting anything except or maybe the vibe. Serena saying or, the umpire. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not except, I mean, the vibe inside the stadium is really important and can mean something. And 
you do see things that way. And I miss something from not being there. But at the same time, like, it's not, it's not worth it for me in that situation. Whereas other matches, I've certainly gotten a lot from being, you know, close to the action, closer to the action than I am. So I think both things are kind of important. And I try and get both. I really rely on tennis journalists. Like I am, I'm completely in the debt of someone like Ben because oh. I'm not, it's true. It's hundred percent true. I'm not there at the press conferences. Like I, I need those transcripts. Someone's got to ask those questions and it's not me, you know? So I piggyback on that. And I, I recognize that that's a very expensive thing that I'm piggybacking on for a lot of other publications. Um, and I'm getting it like largely for free. I also rely on their like reporting work. And, you know, one thing I actually also often like doing also is, I've been like stepping back and saying like, okay, well, what are people, what is the story around this person already? And do I think it's right? Or what do I think it's suggesting about our moment? Or, you know, I sort of try and take like a, maybe sometimes even a two steps removed from whatever story is being told. Um, and I find it especially helpful not to be there, you know, at that point, be- because I find yeah. it just easier. But, but at the same time, like, I don't think I, I definitely couldn't do that if other people weren't doing the kind of on the ground work. Um, yeah, obviously, I think there are certain things that could be improved about tennis journalism, because I think there could be, you know, there's certain like articles I read, I'm like, that should be written better, or whatever, <laughs> you know, but like, it's not, it's not what they're doing. You know, it's that's not their job. Their job is not to be a stylist. I feel like my job is to like, be a stylist in some ways. Um, but my, it would be a problem if what I'm writing is like, just like a crap piece of writing. But I'm not like, that's what I'm doing, you know, whereas other people are actually doing reporting and getting information and things like that. And I rely on that stuff. So I don't want to like sit here and, you know, say that they're not doing their job in the way they should be doing. I mean, they're obviously like tennis, like many things is written with conflicts of interest. I mean, that's, that's the number most obvious answer, I guess. And yeah, we should do away with a lot of those, but um, yeah, I'm not like as outraged. Some of them. Yeah. Some of them are pretty egregious, but I'm not as outraged by that is maybe someone else's. Is there a time when you can remember having a, a take that you think sort of intentionally differed from the sort of narrative that had been created by traveling tennis beat writers around a player? The one, and this is maybe not what you're going to say, but I remember us talking before you wrote the story last year on Felix Oje Aliassine yeah. in that he, and I was on the same page as you, I think if you shared this conversation yeah. a little bit, like he had been talking about being this next big thing, can't miss, great prospect, everything. And both of us were sort of just like, I'm not sure the data's at, and, right. and he may still be that. Right, yeah. But like at this point, and even now, he just lost today. He lost the final to Stefano yeah. Sitsipas in the morning, which makes him, I think, like 0 and 5 or 0 and 6 in no, finals. That's a, no, it's 0 and 5, I think. It's 0 and 5, okay. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> and, you know, without like without a title and without like a few different and without with a really not good record at Grand Slams. Right. It's not to say that he won't get there sometime. He's but really the, young. He's yeah. really young and he's still like a young teenager in the ATP top 20 right. which is pretty unheard of right and he's been to that many finals at right this age. it's like pretty so, amazing so there's but a lot yeah. of pause but there's also like reasons to pause in a way that a lot of times maybe the beat writers are just trying to sell a story and sure. sell and push something in a way that's uh, or they're caught up like yeah. the rest of us in like whatever they've just seen you know and so it can be totally seductive there's like a new shiny object and like everybody's like oh my gosh you know or you know i was like super excited about medvedev coming out of the u.s open it's not like he hasn't done anything for sure he has you know he's like really backed up in a lot of ways, but like, I don't think people are talking about him in, with quite the same, no. like, isn't that a great 2020 exactly so in, that they were, you know, six months ago. Um, I mean, I think we're all kind of like guilty of that sometimes, you know, or Ostapenko you brought up before, like it was like, here's the young player who like has the, you know, and 
and then she makes the quarters of Wimbledon and you feel like, oh, she's like backing it up. And, and it's not like, again, like she's now, you know, has a new coach and she's like doing kind of maybe better, but these stories are really kind of hard to see in the future. And I think a lot of tennis, a lot of the sports world in general thinks that their job is prognostication. And I don't actually think that's usually helpful. I remember when you I remember talking to you, I think when you were writing about Kyrgios, yeah. having to, you need a profile, big profile yeah, exactly. for the New Yorker and this having to example. tell your editors like, no, I'm not writing about him because he's going to be the best someday. Yeah. Like, that's not the story of Kyrgios. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really hard, that's a, actually a pretty good example because I think a lot of people also, they're like, okay, well, he just needs to like grow up and then he'll be the best someday. And like, that's what's going to happen, right? Like he's going to mature or, and it's like, no. And then they're like, well, why aren't you, or maybe, hopefully, you know, but also let's also remember that growing up doesn't necessarily like the evidence that he will have grown up is not that he like wins three Grand Slams right. or whatever, you know, I Grand mean, Slam winners, it's not like, it's not always an affirmation not of character mess, exactly. or maturation. I mean, and that's one of these reasons these stories are so hard. Cause like, again, like I keep coming back to like, how are we defining success here? Like as a person, as a human being, as a tennis player, these are things I was really trying to keep alive. And I do think that like that he's a really good, it's, example because there are these narratives around him are like so tightly held by certain people or these like hopes or expectations and it doesn't always like work like that and i tr- i do try to sort of resist a lot of that yeah. i think no there's uh, we talked about i talked about this on the show the decade show we did it mentioning her but like victoria azarenka somebody who i think of as being a much more impressive person in a lot of ways or well-rounded person than she was when she was number one in the world right. i don't think that she was a better athlete or person when she was winning grand sl- her two grand right. slams I, mean, I think that you know she was at a place in her life where things were clicking for her in that in that category of her life but might have been off-putting to other parts of her or right. part of her persona then and now as she smooth those over the other part goes away but doesn't mean that she's as in terms of just assessing her narrative or right. shape writing about her she's that's not a, a better or worse yeah no that's a really now. good example yeah. um i like that example i also think like so another player i'm, I'm like really interested in is dan Varenka, and i've been interested in in him before he started winning because I thought he, maybe he would win, but he's not a person who's like career high and lows, like line up with some sort of like clean story about how he fits into the history of tennis or whatever. I mean, and those are stories that I often like, I'm those are the kinds of stories I'm usually drawn to, to be honest, like those stories that have these kind of like both explainable, but unexpected, you know, moments that aren't one-offs, you know, they're just, they're part of their like, they're like, they can't be kind of characterized in quite the same way that people want to be able to tell a story like, okay, this is what's happened. This is what's going to happen. And this is how you should like view them. Yeah. Last questions. We got a couple questions and you need to decide how cagey or not you want to be on these questions about tennis books. I would like to write a tennis book. I'm not going to tell you what I would like to write. <laughs> so we got a question that. from Jeffrey yeah. Hamilton. When is Louisa Thomas going to write a book about tennis? I much admire her work. And then Evan P. Cohen asks, is there a tennis book coming out and who or what will be the subject? I mean, if we can zoom this out, I'm trying this a little more abstract than okay. real life for both of us. Um, do you have a favorite tennis book? Or, or, or what do you think? And there are not a ton of tennis books. It's, yeah. it's, it has, there's sort of a stigma around tennis and publishing. Well, I, I'm going to actually yeah. say I find a lot of sports books really hard. Like I find that sports doesn't often age that well um, for various reasons. So I find like... Sports books often have a shelf life that other kind of books don't have. Um, and that does has for a long time made me really like resistant or reluctant to write a sports book. I mean, I'm I kind of like I think Open is an, actually an amazing book. I think that that's my, probably my favorite tennis book. I mean, I think that um, 
Oh my god, I'm so blanking. With John McPhee's... Oh, Levels of the levels Game. Of the game. Levels of the Game is okay. great. Yeah. Uh, levels of the Game, it, I think, is like a, a very... <laughs> I have like mixed feelings about Levels of the Game in some ways, but it's a very important book for me. Like, hugely important book for me. And yeah, I'm, like, I, I'm indebted to its existence. <laughs> but I, I don't think that there are that many great tennis books. There's also just not that many great like sports books. So it's not necessarily a knock on, on tennis per se. Um, I would like to write a tennis book someday. I've just finally come around to that. Not finally. I've, I've, I've tried to actually pursue a couple of tennis books and they haven't worked out for ver- various reasons. I would still like to pursue tennis books and hopefully that will happen. But I, I, I like Kim Kleister's. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, figure out how to like live my life. And I do have like a full-time job and also a, a child that I'm like spending time with. So I'm not imminently, I'm not about to publish a, a tennis book in the very near term future, but I'm hoping that down the road there's a story or two that. Yeah. And I'm hoping I'm rooting for tennis publishing as a, as a group. I think that it's a, you having been in this world a little bit, there is this sort of like stigma that tennis books don't do well yeah. and publishers are reluctant to embrace tennis projects compared to like golf or baseball where they seem to publish anything. At yeah. least from the outside, it seems like. I mean, it's also, you got to, like, meet your market. Like, if you can sell something on Father's Day, like, you know, you could probably sell it. Right. Um, Which so is kind of the, whether well, it's the Father's Day book, like, it's sort of, oh, that's probably, like, a Federer book. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or a, you know, I don't know, big men's tennis book. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, and it's it's a hard time for publishing because they don't really know what's going on. No one knows what's going on. You know, this is, like, a, we're, like, in an interesting Interesting times in the negative sense <laughs> when it comes to like writing in general. Um, we should all just do a podcast series. I think it's there like, the- <laughs> which are hard, by the way. I just did. A, I think we were talking about this oh before, but I, I recently worked on a scripted podcast series about tennis, actually, which I will mention here at some point when it's available, which won't be for a couple months now. It was been pushed back by various factors, but it's a lot of work writing a scripted podcast. It's like it's into weird specific kind of skill that I, even as someone who's done. <laughs> 300 odd episodes of NCR, which is almost entirely non-scripted and conversational. Like it was a, it was relearning how to ride some different kind of bike I'd never seen before. Yeah, I did. I've done one scripted podcast um, for a slate series and I found it to be a tremendous amount of work. I mean, it was a really interesting process. Um, and I, I actually thought like the interviews went really well and everything, partly because it was so labor <laughs> intensive. Um, but it did give me a, a huge amount of respect for, um, I wasn't meaning to like diss podcasts. I think they're a very important new medium. But yeah, I I do hope to be a writer, and uh, I'm hoping that there's a still room in the world for my writing. I would think there always would be. There's always room for you in NCR as well. Thank you for being on. I'm glad we finally made this happen. Hopefully, it will not be the the last time. Let's have you back again. on sometime soon. Thank you very much, Louisa, for coming on. Anywhere people can follow you besides or, or your stuff or, or look for or, and you can plug your other books by the way um, your non-tennis books people yeah, so, should buy them so i'm author of conscience two about four brothers in world war one two pacifists and two soldiers and also a biography of louisa Catherine adams john quincy adams wife um called louisa called louisa louisa by louisa louisa by louisa and that's the book that's the piece of writing i actually feel like i have to so i i started writing that right after i started writing about tennis and those sounds very strange but those two books um, no, not those two books, but tennis writing and Louisa, like they're very like, they're both just part. I mean, they're very close to my heart and they influence each other in really important ways, I think. So if you like my tennis writing, read Louisa. <laughs> um, yeah, I write for the New Yorker. So check me out on newyorker.com. I am on Twitter very, very sporadically. Basically, I only post 
laconic descriptions of my own stories. <laughs> um, Which are very useful. They're like, yeah. because it's usually how I found out you have a new story out. So it's, it's useful for me at Louisa H. Thomas. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. At Louisa H. Thomas. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm on there. Always like, feel free to drop me a line. Um, and I apologize for not, you know, being more a better part of tennis Twitter. Well, thank you very much for being part of the show. If you want to follow on the show when you're not listening to the show, follow us on Twitter also at NCR underscore tennis. Send us questions, comments, reviews, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And thank you to those of you who have supported us on Patreon so far. We've got like 100, over 120 backers now, which is awesome. I'm going to also, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> the reason I haven't done it is that I am waiting to hear my name read out on NCR. And I figured maybe I didn't want my name read out on the one in which I'm also a guest. I'm going to like a double appearance. We'll get on the next one. How okay, about that? Sounds good. That sounds good. That's good. <laughs> And if people, people also, we've gotten a couple of messages from people who say like, I want to support the show, but don't want my name read. Like, that's fine. We have Why? Done, I don't know, but we have, we have a couple people who <laughs> have asked, glory. A couple people who have asked for that. And yes, if you, if you send us a message saying, hi, I just supported the show on, on, on Patreon, but do not read my name. We've already obliged several of those requests so that we can make that happen for okay. you. Um, yeah. So please read my name twice. <laughs> okay. We'll do that. Thank you very much, Louisa. Right, and we'll you. read your name twice. Whenever it is you do this. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much. So thank you very much to Louisa. And thank you to our new backers. Since we last did a show or last recorded a show, the Sharapova episode a couple days ago with Tamani Carroll. New backers to our Patreon since then, Josh H. and Chad L. Thank you very much to both of you for your help there. Thank you also to our GOAT backer, J-O-D. And also to our Slam Champ backers, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Chuang Nguyen and Betty. Thanks very much for all your help. And if you want to support us on Patreon, we are at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. We'll see you next week. Bye guys. Bye.